the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Long-time listeners to this program know that every once in a while we like to focus on key events in history out of deference to the notion that those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. And I think it's always valuable for young listeners to the program to get a bit of perspective about the incredible sacrifices made by parents and grandparents and perhaps great-grandparents, those of previous generations, um, once called the greatest generation, that survived through the likes of World War I, the Great Depression, and of course, World War II. It was indeed a pivotal time in world history as literally the freedom of all of Europe and most of Asia hung in the balance. It is because of the hard work, sacrifice, and even bloodshed of great heroes like those that we will meet tonight that we can say today that the flag of liberty continues to fly over America and that the peoples of Western Europe and Asia are free today because of those sacrifices made by the greatest generation. Later on, we'll have a chance to visit with Captain Jerry Yellen, author of a new book called The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. We'll get to that conversation in a moment, but I thought before we do, to kind of give you some perspective on what it was like to be in those so-called flying fortresses where literally nothing more than plexiglass and thin aluminum stood between you and sure death as combat missions were flown over Europe and certainly over many parts of Asia to bring to a close World War II. We had an opportunity not long ago to travel in one of the last B-17s manufactured by Boeing, this particular plane that we'll talk about came off the line in mid-1945, August of that year. And so it was actually produced too late to actually see combat, but uh, nevertheless played an important role um, in the testing of many devices that led to the modernization of the planes that are even flown uh, today. So let's give a listen to a bit of the history of a um, pretty historic flying fortress, the B-17, the Liberty Bell. And then when we come back after a brief timeout, an opportunity to visit with the last fighter pilot of World War II. Captain Jerry Yellen joins us to discuss his new book, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II. 
This particular airplane was built in 1945. It never went overseas. It stayed here because it was at the end of the war. The airplane was surplused. The second company that bought it after it was surplus was Pratt & Whitney, and they used it as an engine test bed. And they actually removed the front of the airplane and took off the uh, bombardier station, put a firewall up there, and uh, mounted an engine and used it to uh, test the early turbine engines. It did a lot of turbine engine testing in the 60s. The airplane then went to a museum in Connecticut for several years, was caught up in a storm. Tornado broke the airplane. Then the uh, airplane eventually made it down to a museum in Kissimmee, Florida, where the Liberty Foundation picked it up. Don Brooks is really the spearhead of the whole campaign, and he uh, picked up this airframe and another airframe, restored them over a period of 14 years, and put about $3.5 million in the restoration to uh, bring the Liberty Bell back to life. And he painted the airplane up in the 390th paint scheme of the airplane his father was a tail gunner on. So for Don, this was a pretty sentimental endeavor that he uh, took on and was able to bring to life the Liberty Bell for all of us to enjoy. Off we go into the wild blue yonder, climbing high into the sun. Here they come, zooming to meet the thunder, and them boys give her the gun. Down we die, spouting our flame from under, off with one terrible roar. We live in fame, or go down in flame, for nothing can stop the army
particular aircraft was built in Burbank, California, the Lockheed Vega plant in Burbank. It came out of the factory either the last week of February or first week of March of 1945. The aircraft went into the military inventory, was used as a training aircraft for just two or three months or so, and that was the end of its active service. It was declared surplus by the War Department uh, because the war ended in, in August of 1945. It was sold to a smeltering plant to be melted down the way they chopped up and melted down thousands of the aircraft. They melted them down and made aluminum pots and pans out of them, or in the 50s they built a lot of homes that had aluminum windows in them. A lot of those homes with those aluminum windows had the aluminum that came out of aircraft, either fighters or bombers or whatever. Pratt & Whitney was developing a new engine, which today we know of as turboprop engines, but Pratt & Whitney was developing a new engine. They needed a test bed. They purchased this aircraft from the smeltering plant and flew it for 20 years, testing primarily their T-34 and T-64 turboprop engines. They moved the cockpit back 43 inches on the aircraft, elongated the nose, and mounted this turbine engine on the nose of the aircraft. with it after they had flown it for some 20 years they took the turbine engine off of the aircraft and just put a blank nose on it and donated it to the new england air museum historical society who that has a a lot of world war ii airplanes in their museum at hartford connecticut at the bradley field which is the main commercial airport for hartford connecticut in october of 1979 a tornado came across bradley field took out a boeing 707 and went across the New England Air Museum static display of aircraft and destroyed, I think it was nine aircraft that were in their museum. This was one of the aircraft that was destroyed. It threw another airplane right through the fuselage and cut it in half, right behind the wings. It lay there in pieces for several years and then was acquired and taken down to Kissimmee, Florida to start the restoration. Don Brooks, who had been looking for a B-17 because Don's father was tail gunner on the original Liberty Bell, Don acquired it in 19. The restoration was complete, and the aircraft flew for the first time on December the 8th, 2004. We were trying to fly the airplane on December the 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, but I wound up with an engine problem and took one more day to get it ready to fly. So it flew on December the 8th of 2004, the first time the aircraft had been in the air in 35 years. Total cost of uh, approximately $3.5 million and 14 and a half years to restore the aircraft. Well, the flight engineer, is that right? Yep, I was flight engineer. The 28th combat mission over Germany. Germany. What period during the war was that? Well, 42 and 43. So early on then. Yeah, oh yeah, I was one of the first two. What was the experience like here today, being back in this plane for the first time in 60-something years? The only time I ever got airsick for an I did, pretty near. You were the guy that was up there in that top turret with the machine gun, correct? That was it, yeah. These were waste gunners. That was a bad spot down there, the ball turret. You couldn't get out if you got shot up or something. Tail gunner is the only one that ever got hit. I think he got hit on about the 20th. Put him in the hospital at the end of it. You ever almost not make it back? Every year. Could happen any time. That many airplanes and shooting at us all the time, you know. Yeah, Dover, Germany, France. Yeah, early on there, you know, they were shooting all the time. Fighters couldn't, our fighters couldn't protect us. 
couldn't get that far in. I think we were going about 110, 15, 20 miles an hour. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Though there's one motor gone, we can still carry on. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. What a show. Captain Jerry Yellen joins us to discuss his new book, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II, next. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a date that would live in infamy, as President Roosevelt called it, when the Japanese suddenly and deliberately attacked Pearl Harbor and the Pacific Fleet of the U.S. Navy stationed in Hawaii. Over 2,403 Americans died that day. Another 1,200 were wounded. The first time Japan heard back from us was on April 18th of 1942, when Jimmy Doolittle led a raid over Tokyo. The United States Navy aircraft carrier Hornet steams westward across the Pacific. Packed on the afterdeck of the Hornet are 16 B-25 Mitchell bombers. Never before have these huge planes been launched from a carrier. High explosive and demolition bombs are made ready for the destruction of military objectives in Japan. Last time Japan heard from us was on the morning of August 14th, 1945. Exactly three years, three months, 28 days after the Doolittle raid, and nine days after the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Captain Jerry Yellen and his crew took off from Iwo Jima on a bombing run bound for Tokyo that morning. By the time Captain Yellen returned, his wingman, First Lieutenant Philip Schomburg, would be dead, and the war would officially be over. Captain Yellen's life and experiences are detailed inside the pages of a new book called The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. And Captain Yellen, it is an honor and privilege to have you join us today, sir. Well, it was an honor to serve my country with 16 million other young men. And uh, we had a war of viciousness against America and we jumped to the fore and fought that war, all 16 million of us. It wasn't just one or, one or two people. I lived in Newark, New Jersey. I was working at Crucible Steel, a night shift. I got up on Sunday morning, December 7th, and went to the, to the newspaper, went to the 
corner store to get a newspaper and I heard about Pearl Harbor. And I made up my mind at that moment, even though I was only 17 years old, that I was going to fly fighter planes against the Japanese who, who attacked my country. So you were 17 when Pearl Harbor happened. When did you then enlist in uh, the U.S. military? I went to the Armory as soon as I could after December 7th and got the papers, uh, filled them out and presented them to my parents on my 18th birthday, February 15th, 1942. They signed them reluctantly. And I took the exams to become an aviation cadet was inducted into the Army as a, an aviation cadet in waiting in August of 1942, and I graduated from flying school with 10 hours in a P-40 in August 1943. So by August of 43, you were ready for combat duty. Where was your first assignment? We There were 28 of us, the last 28 in the alphabet from Oakfield, class of 43H, sent to Hawaii to join the 78th Fighter Squadron to get more time in a P-40 and then to begin um, island hopping to Anahuita, Kwajalein, and Tarawa. But they kept four of us in the squadron to fly island defense with the 78th Fighter Squadron. And I didn't get into combat until March 7, 1945, when the Marines had enough land on Iwo Jima to protect the airplanes at the base of Mount Sarabachi on a dirt airstrip. So by 1945, uh, fully nearly three years after the start of America's involvement or entrance into World War II, you were finally beginning to see combat. What was that experience like? You certainly had spent a lot of time training both stateside and, and Hawaii and eventually overseas. But when you finally flew your very first combat mission, what was that feeling like? Well, there was a feeling of apprehension that I had. I was in a leadership position, position as an element leader in a flight. And I was wondering before the flight, would I live up, live up to what I had to do? Could I do this combat? This was an eight-hour mission, round trip from Iwo Jima to Japan. And it was an unknown for me. Uh, and, and I was very apprehensive about it, of, of whether I could pull it off and do it. Uh, but we did. I did it 19 times, uh, 7 hours and 55 minutes to 8 hours and 10 minutes in a P-51. It was uh, a difficult mission. We had uh, maybe 30 or 40 minutes of target time, and the rest of it was flying over the ocean to and from Japan in a small airplane on the wing of the B-29. Uh, it was very difficult times. And maybe you can describe for listeners, because uh, other than those who have military experience, when they think about flying in airplanes, they have an image in their mind or perhaps a smaller vision of a, uh, a smaller version of a jumbo 747 that's uh, air conditioned and cooled and uh, controlled cabin pressure and lots of creature comforts. Uh, but your experience in a P-51 was anything but that, wasn't it? Well, you can go in a bomber, or you can get up and get something to eat, have a cup of coffee, or go to the bathroom. Uh, you can walk around a bomber those those days, but you certainly couldn't walk around a P-51. You were strapped into a very small seat, 
and there were no automatic pilots. You hand flew the airplane. You had to aim the guns, fly the airplane so that the ball was in the center, and be very careful about what you did because you had to fly up the tail of an airplane or come in very close. Today they have auto everything, um, even flying the airplane and you know, be 20, 30 miles away, pick up a pip on the on your screen and fire a missile. You never have to see the army. So we were the last of the hands-on fighter pilots who flew uh, piston airplanes, uh, engine airplanes. And then they got out in, in 45 or 46. We got the P-80, the first jet, and it's made a lot of progress to the planes that fly today. F-16s, uh, 22s, 35s, different. I went from never being up in an airplane to soloing in February of 1943 to being a fighter pilot in August of 1943. It took six months. And today, maybe it takes three years to do the same thing. And in those experiences while you were flying, not only did you have to pay close attention to the other aircraft around you, you also had to be concerned from anti-aircraft flak from the 8mm AK-AK guns. And really the only thing that was protecting you from all of that was plexiglass and very thin aluminum between you and the bullets and the flak. Not quite true. We had a, a protective armament behind us. And we had self-sealing gas tanks, and it was, uh, you know, we weren't flamers. We, we didn't burn the same way as the Japanese airplanes, which didn't have armament and didn't have self-sealing gas tanks. So if you hit them with a bullet, they exploded and caught on fire. We didn't quite go through that. We had protection. So you enjoyed a, a little level, additional layer of protection then than even those guys that were flying the B-17s that, that literally had nothing. I, I don't ha- understand to this day how you could fly a formation in formation with the B-17s, 24s, and then the 29s, the B-29s over Japan. They had 10, 11, 12 people in the airplane, and they were all courageous and dedicated to doing what they had to do to protect our country and to win the war. They did it. If you've just joined our conversation, a visit today with Captain Jerry Yellen. He is the last fighter pilot who, in fact, flew the final mission over Japan. He left on the morning of August 14th, 1945, bound for Tokyo. By the time he returned, the war was over. A look at the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Our conversation with Captain Jerry Yellen continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold. 
That was the announcement, of course, by President Truman of the initial atomic bomb attack over Hiroshima in early August of 1945. We're visiting today with Captain Jerry Yellen. He is indeed the last fighter pilot. That is the title, by the way, of a new book regarding his life story, recently released by Regnery Press. Captain Yellen, in fact, flew that final mission over Japan in August of 1945, August the 14th to be precise. When you took off that day from Iwo Jima, Jerry, bound for Tokyo, for you, was it just another day, just another bombing run? Well, we we didn't have bombs. We were up on fighter sweeps at at that time. And it was not just another day. Uh, We were told on the 13th that we would hear the code word Utah, the Japanese would surrender, we'd abort the mission and come back. That didn't happen. We never heard the code word. And we scraped airfields in Japan. My wingman, Phil Schlomberg, said to me on the 13th that if he went on the mission, he wasn't coming back. Um, I tried to get him off the mission, but he wouldn't have any part of that. And when we were through strafing, we needed we needed 90 gallons of fuel to get back to Iwo Jima. So someone in the squadron called 90 gallons. And Phil was on my wing. I gave him a thumbs up. He gave me a thumbs up. And I led my flight into some weather. And when I came out of the weather in the clear skies, he was gone. Phil was gone. There was no vision, no visible no radio contact, it was just gone. And when we landed on Iwo Jima, we found out that when we started to scrape, the war had been over for three hours. So it was a pretty tough mission for me. Was it even surprising to you men that the war was continuing on? I mean, I, I would imagine while all of the buildup certainly to the development of the atomic bomb was done in absolute secrecy, by the time the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, I think the assumption largely was that that would have ended the war. And of course, it did not. The Japanese continued to fight, refused to surrender. We subsequently, three days later, dropped a second atomic bomb on Nagasaki, and it took some time even after that for the Japanese and the emperor to finally unconditionally surrender, which, of course, had been the terms of the Potsdam Agreement from the very get-go. Was it a surprise to you guys flying and continuing to run uh, to do um, missions over Japan that they were continuing to hold out and continuing to refuse to surrender as late as the 14th of, this, of August? Well, we thought the war was over. All of us thought we wouldn't have to fly another mission. We wouldn't lose any anybody else. After the war, it was discovered that the army, Japanese army, was would would have killed the emperor. They tried to get the recording that he made. They wanted to continue the fight. The army. Fortunately, they didn't do that. And fortunately, we didn't invade Japan. We would have had a million casualties. A million people died. I've had people, Japanese people, come up to me who are now in their, now in their 80s and thank me for their lives when they were 10, 11 years old, years and years ago. They were told how to make bombs to strap on their bodies, Molotov cocktails, gasoline, and they were ready to kill for their emperor, kill us. And that didn't happen. It's a very fortunate thing. Today, 
we have a weapon, a nuclear weapon, the smallest nuclear weapon in America is a thousand times bigger than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There are, I guess, two surprising things for uh, young people today regarding World War II. One was what you just referred to, Captain Yellen, and that was the Japanese steadfast insistence, particularly among ranking members of the Japanese Navy and the Japanese Army, to continue to fight even long after the bombs have been dropped August 6th on Hiroshima and August 9th in Nagasaki. The other thing that is not often talked about was the degree of Japanese barbarism, particularly against Americans, as we began to retake many of the islands uh, that they can take in control of, uh, folks perhaps not fully aware that it wasn't just Pearl Harbor that the Japanese bombed. They attacked the Marshall Islands, Wake Island, they attacked Guam, they attacked uh, Hong Kong, they attacked the Philippine Islands, and pretty much for a, a good portion of 1942 and 43, uh, controlled almost the totality of that region of the Pacific. Um, what were some of the stories, Jerry, that you heard regarding some of the Japanese treatment of American prisoners of war? And I'm thinking specifically of what you and your co-author Dan Brown write about in The Last Fighter Pilot concerning the treatment that was experienced on the island of uh, Chichijima. We, we knew uh, a bit about the horrific treatment of people by the Japanese from the reports that came back from China, Manchuria, um, and those parts of the world where they invaded, I think, Manchuria in 1931, 32, somewhere in there, 1936, China. And we knew about those things, and uh, we experienced them, that the Bataan Death March in the Philippines, uh, the treatment of the people. They felt that they were superior to everybody else in the world, the Japanese then. Fortunately, the wisdom, not of what what, what uh, Tom Brokaw calls the greatest generation, but the wisdom of the commanders of the American forces, uh, Admiral Nimitz and Admiral Kane and and General Arnold and General MacArthur, who all went to West Point in Annapolis, um, took us to rebuild the three countries that we fought against, Germany, Japan, and Italy. Uh, and they today are our staunchest allies. And the two countries we fought with as allies in World War II, Russia and China, seemingly are the enemies of the world. So in my lifetime, my enemy became my family. I have three Japanese grandchildren. And my friends from Russia and China became seemingly the enemies of America and other portions of the world. Uh, amazing how the political spectrum can uh, pivot on a dime the way it has, as you suggest, in, in just your lifetime. Jerry, certainly this was a harrowing experience for any young man to face. Um, I think to put this in perspective um, for young people today to realize that there were young men and women who were barely graduated from high school at the age of 18, who then immediately went off into the military, received their combat training, and then went immediately off into either the European theater to fight against the Italian and Germans in Europe. Europe or the Pacific Theater fighting against the Japanese, and that many of the young men who fought 
died and ultimately won the war for the Allies were men that in some cases were as young as 18, 19 years old. Many of your, I guess, older peers might be the oldest of other than than leadership leadership personnel. Many of your comrades were Jerry what in their their early to mid twenties. Well, the youngest guy that I knew that was killed, the 16 guys that I flew with, was Phil Schlumberg. He was 19. And the oldest was Bill Sutherland, our CEO, and he was 26. So these were young guys who were pilots. But, you know, there are three professions that put uniforms on. The military put a uniform on. The policemen put a uniform on. The firemen put a uniform on. And when you do that, you commit your life to other people in the line of duty. And the pure purpose of war, the pure purpose of war, is to kill your enemy. And we all became killers. And most of us were trained, thou shalt not kill. That's what the Ten Commandments are about, one of them. And we learned to kill. And then the after effect of that, when you do that, when you go into combat, the after effect is horrific. I don't know anybody who spoke about their wartime experiences. I had 11 or 12 first cousins, second cousins who served in the military, and I never had once had a conversation with them about the war. My sister's husband was an MP on Normandy Beach on D-Day, and I never spoke to him about what he did. He never spoke to me about it. Ask me what I did. When you learn how to kill, it's there forever. And it doesn't go away. So the after effect of war affects families, affects the people who did it, who did the fighting. Because we, as human beings, are all exactly the same. There's no difference between any culture or uh, any belief. We're all human beings together. We have evil in the world today and ISIS and what they believe and strongly enough willing to kill other people for what they believe and that's the height of evil. And we went through that as a nation um, and, and from 1941 on. Our visit today with Captain Jerry Yellen, the last fighter pilot. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit with Captain Yellen right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. Arrangements are now being made for the formal signing of the surrender terms at the earliest possible moment. There, of course, was then-President Truman announcing the Japanese surrender and acceptance of the unconditional surrender terms of the Potsdam Declaration. That happened in August of 1945. We are visiting with the last fighter pilot, Captain Jerry Yellen, who on the morning of August 14th of 1945 took off from Iwo Jima on what would ultimately become the last raid 
over Japan. Captain Yellen, just before the break, we were talking about the after effects of having served in war. Today, they call it post-traumatic stress disorder. During World War II and the First World War, it was referred to as shell-shocked. Why is it that you think that so many of your colleagues came back from that war and didn't want to talk about it? And why are you being open about your own experiences now, today? Well, people can't talk about what they did because they learned how to kill. They learned how to use a weapon to kill other people. And that's, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. You put a uniform on and you see another uniform, that uniform's the enemy. And you're both committed to kill each other. We did that. The, the Marines do hand-to-hand combat. combat. The infantry does hand-to-hand combat. Up front, up close, see the blood, smell the smell of dying bodies. And you lose buddies, you lose your friends, and you keep going on. When the war ends, it never goes away from your head. It just does not go away. Today, uh, Iraqi and Afghanistan veterans commit suicide at a rate of 22, 25 a day from the stress of war. Uh, They drink and they beat up the women and they do horrific things and they have no control of what they do. It's just uh, that's their outlet for stress. Fortunately for me, 30 years after the war, in 1975, I learned Transcendental Meditation, GM, and got my life back. Well, I would have committed suicide. I thought about it enough. I <clears throat> figured out ways to do it. Didn't do it because I had a family of four sons, but I thought about it an awful lot. I stand by a window and say, John, and, you know, didn't just didn't do it. But uh, 22, 25 a day today, I do commit suicide. And maybe that's what we know. Maybe there are more. I don't know. But there are ways to relieve the stress of war. One of them is transcendental meditation, which has uh, been in my life for 42 years, since 1975. Jerry, you made a return visit to Iwo Jima in March of 2015. What was the purpose of that trip, and what was the experience like returning for the first time after all those years? Well, it was an amazing adventure for me to go there, um, to see the island. As I know it, there wasn't a blade of grass, and there were armament all over the island. There were a thousand ships ringing the island. And when you go there today, it's overgrown with grass and trees. It's quiet. You see some of the Japanese and, um, and guns that are there and some of the caves that are there and you meet with Japanese people who's uh, one or two have been on Iwo Jima a lot of the relatives have been there uh, you meet Mr. Shindo who is a member of uh, the Japanese Diet who's the grandson of General Kobayashi he's a neat guy Shindo-san and he's a friend yeah, you know, Jap- Japanese people come to there on a, a, a reunion of honor it's the only battle that's ever been fought where the two combatants sit down and meet together and honor each other's dead. I think there's still 10 or 11,000 Japanese bodies on Iwo Jima that have never been found of the 22,000 who were killed. And it's a shrine. It's literally a shrine. It's open one day a year. 
I said in 2015, I'm not going back to Japan again. I'm 91 years old then, and it's too much of a trip. But my Japanese granddaughter, Sarah, who's now 21, said she would like to go back in 2016, and I went back. And I went there this past March uh, with Sarah, and I'm going back again if I'm here in March of 2018. I'll continue to go back with my Japanese granddaughter. She wants to write. She wants the knowledge about what her two grandfathers felt about each other. And uh, that's sort of what I'm doing. It's a reunion of honor. It's a reunion of, of time passing through and people getting to see other people, their enemies, as people, as friends. It's a beautiful experience. On the return trips, what yes. thoughts go through your mind, Captain Yellen, when you think of First Lieutenant Philip Schomburg, who eventually became the last official combat casualty of World War II? I think of the 16 guys that were killed in the 78th Party Squadron. And uh, I feel fortunate that I had a life, and I feel very sad that the 16 guys did not have a life. They never went beyond the military in 1945. Um, so it's a difficult time. It's a tearful time. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, to be on an island where you went through so much. But it's an honor to be there representing the 16 million that served uh, as men and women in the military and the 8 million young women who were Rosie the Riveters, who served our country. That's 24 million people serving our nation uh, with 150 million people population. We were dedicated to bringing peace to the world, and I'm honored to be a part of that group that did that, all of us. Yours, Captain Yellen, of course, has been often referred to as the greatest generation, the generation that survived the ravages of the stock market crash and the Great Depression, and then ultimately World War II. As you think back on your experiences at this stage in your life, Captain Yellen, what kind of advice, what kind of legacy would you like to leave for future generations whose life experiences growing up in America today are so vastly different than yours of the 1930s and 40s? Well, I was born in 1924 and 1929, five years later, the Depression House hit America in 1929. And I can tell you that our lives in the country were all about you. We made sure that everybody, I needed food, I got it. I needed places to sleep, I got that. Our life was all about you. Seemingly today, especially among the young people, life is only about me. So my recommendation is do something good for someone else every day. It's something that I learned in 1936 when I read a book by Lloyd Douglas, a minister called The Magnificent Obsession about a doctor who did good things for people all of his life. And that's a mantra for me, to keep doing what I think is right and, and don't talk about the things that you do. Just do something nice for another human being every day. Even if it's your mother, your brother, your father. Just go out of your way 
to do something good for someone else. It's been a look at the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Its author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Captain Jerry Yellen. Captain Yellen, again, we appreciate not only your time and uh, your willingness to talk to us, but most importantly, sir, we appreciate very much your service to our country. It was an honor to serve. I would do it again under the same circumstances. And it's an honor and a pleasure to be on your show. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.